Welcome to Hollow Ground Storycast. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya, and this episode is about my high school movie obsession, Bend It Like Beckham. Anyone can cook alu gobi, but who can bend a ball like Beckham? So if you haven't seen Bend It Like Beckham, it is a 2002 British movie about an Indian-British girl named Jess Minder. And Jess has always been good at football, but she's only played casually in the park with her friends. One day, she's spotted playing by another girl, Juliet, who plays for a women's football club and recruits her to join. Jess has to hide her football habit from her traditional Sikh parents, who think she should be focused on learning how to cook a proper Indian dinner to find a good husband and helping prepare for her sister's upcoming wedding. Eventually, Jess realizes that she'll never be happy if she doesn't pursue a career in football and convinces her family to support her. Jess and Juliet impress a soccer scout from America and both get a full scholarship to play in university. Bend It Like Beckham was written and directed by Gurinder Chada and also co-written by Palmeira Burgess and Guljit Bindra. It stars Parminder Nagra, Kira Knightley, Jonathan Riss Myers, Anupam Kerr, Shazne Lewis, and Archie Punjabi. Uh, it had a $6 million budget and made back $76 million in theaters globally. In 2015, it was turned into a musical in London that is now touring internationally. I want to let everyone know that you did all those names in one take, and it's really impressive. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was amazing, actually. Oh, uh, well, I, yeah, I don't know. They're not that hard. So... Um, when when was the first time you said you saw this? I mean, earlier you said uh, it was your high school movie obsession. So was that the first time you saw it? Yeah. So this movie came out early high school for me. Um, and I think I saw it in theaters and then immediately like bought the DVD. It was probably my most watched movie of high school. I think it was one of the first movies where I like watched the director's commentary. Um, and there's like a an extra on the DVD where uh, the director, Grinder Chada, makes alu gobi with her mom and her auntie watching. <laughs> and <laughs> That's awesome. it's a me- yeah, me and my friend Lauren watched that DVD extra. And then alu gobi basically became like our go-to dish that we would always make together um, whenever we were staying over at her house. Oh, wow. Huh. Oh, and so this is like even a, like a deeper throwback but like one of the reasons why I was she and I were like so into this movie so her dad is like a programmer and when we were in elementary school like probably second grade or something um he was like teaching us how to make websites on like GeoCities or whatever actually no I think he had his own server that he hosted it on but we made like a fan page about Mia Ham together oh wow <laughs> there was just like <laughs> Pictures of Mia Ham that we had, like, gotten off of, I don't even know what search ins existed back then. <laughs> um, definitely pre-Google. A nine-year-old talking about, like, all of the reasons why I love Mia Ham. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. I mean, I definitely played soccer as a kid, but I was never good at soccer. Just the idea of, like, a professional female athlete. Um, was super inspiring to me as a kid, even if I wasn't like that into soccer specifically. And then the other level that I really connected to this movie on was another one of my really good friends in high school was uh, Taiwanese American. And so I would, 
you know, go over to her house all the time and, and hang out with her parents. And like, obviously, Taiwanese American is very different in the specifics uh, compared to like Indian British. There's like definitely something like <laughs> a little more universal about being a third culture kid, I think is what it's often called, where it's like children of immigrants, where you're kind of uh, in this in-between space between your parents' culture and the dominant culture of the place where you live. You know, your parents sometimes um, have different values and um, are a little bit stricter than all of your like white friends' parents. Watching my friend um, go through that and like try and grapple with those things secondhand, um, like seeing that portrayed so authentically in a movie, it just like, it really resonated with me. Um, so what did you think about it? Was this the first time you'd seen it? No, I, I've definitely seen the movie before. I think I saw it around the time it came out, probably when it was like hitting DVD. Uh, but I haven't watched it in a really long time. Definitely not since I had kids. And it was kind of weird where I was like really identifying with the parents at different points, not in like sympathizing with their position or anything, but going like, oh, yeah, that's a real thing. You're like, no, no, you're going to get your heart broken. No, no, just just conform to the culture and and, and don't have a painful life. Like, <laughs> like, that's all very real. And uh, and struggling with that to like let your kids be who they are is like. I was like, oh, my God, like, I'm so old. How did this yeah. happen? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I guess, you know, not having kids myself, I'm still definitely as much in the, like, young teenager perspective as I was when I first watched it. So that's interesting that you are kind of now seeing it from the other side. <laughs> also, like, the other weird thing about watching this movie um, after years of, of watching other movies Around the time that this came out, there was another movie that we might do for uh, the show that I really, really love. It's an adaptation of Shakespeare's first play called Titus Andronicus. Mm -hmm. And it's like one of those modern setting versions of a Shakespeare movie. One of the bad guys in it is uh, the coach of the soccer team or oh, football yeah. team. And he's like a really terrible person in that movie. And then he's in another movie where he's the main character called Matchpoint. It's like a Woody Allen movie uh, where he is a really awful human being, like a total oh, sociopath. just like Woody Allen. Like, I'll just briefly spoil this movie because I'm sure that people won't ever watch it. It's, it's well written and well directed and really well acted, but, you know, like is kind of vile. That same guy is like a tennis pro and he wants to become rich. So he like seduces this uh, daughter of a you know, like a magnate, like a business guy mm -hmm. and um, becomes her husband and then gets a job in that guy's company because of nepotism and then has like a, an affair with Scarlett Johansson, who's like poor and who he actually wants to be with. But she's too poor for him. Gross. Yeah. And then she ends up getting pregnant. Uh, he doesn't want to leave his wife to take care of that situation and so he ends up killing his girlfriend, and then everything turns out okay in the end for him. Are you... What? What? Yeah. What? Yeah, that's the movie. That's what it's about. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for just telling me what happens so I don't have to w watch it, because no. He's he's terrible in that movie. So watching this movie, I was like, you dirtbag. 
Like you, you're a terrible person. And it was like, I had to constantly remind myself, actually, no, he's, he's an okay guy. Oh, that's interesting. Well, especially because I feel like his character is one that like could be interpreted as like somewhat insidious and predatory if you wanted to read it that way. Yeah, there's know? definitely problematic stuff, but it's not like those other characters yeah, yeah. that I have that association with, so... So one of the things that I love about this movie is that it's so thematically rich, but it also is kind of like an easy to digest movie that is both like subverting some things, but like mostly follows the the form of the like teen romantic comedy that we're used to and is like pretty easy to digest, even though it's so thematically rich and like covers all of these different topics. Uh, And so the first thing I wanted to hit on was just the experience of what it's like to be children of immigrants in a dominant culture that's like not the same as your family's culture Um, and trying to balance those like family expectations with the broader cultural expectations and like your own personal expectations. When the 15-year anniversary of the release uh, came up, there was an Atlantic article by Rajpreet here who, you know, grew up as a kid of Indian immigrants in Indiana who also had family living in the UK and talking about how this movie really helped her kind of grapple with her own identity Um, And made her really feel seen and represented in media for, like, the first time. And honestly, like, (laughs) there hasn't been any movie that's spoken to her quite like it, even in the past 15 years. (laughs) Um, It really helped her feel more at peace with herself and her identity when she was either feeling alienated from her Indian culture or feeling alienated from uh, her mostly white school community. I think the movie is really important on that level and that it speaks to to that kind of specific group of people. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it works so well is because it is so autobiographical. She was never that into sports um, or soccer at all. She actually kind of thought football was really stupid before <laughs> she started working on this movie, although she became a fan of football through making the movie. Um, but she did, as a, like a young kid and then a young woman growing up um, refused to learn how to make chapatis from her mother because she thought it was sexist that like women had to be in the kitchen all the time like making this food and the men never did any of that (laughs) Uh, a lot of the lines from Jasminda's mom and dad really came from her experiences with her own parents and family members and especially she said like all of the lines from Jules's mom about like Jasminda isn't it? Jasminda Jasminda yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I cooked a lovely curry the other day. Ugh, God. <laughs> um, you know, it was like, it just like flowed so easily from her fingers. She was like, I didn't even realize I was like carrying all this like repressed shit from from having to deal with my friend's parents when I was a kid and all of those like, you know. Most coming of age stories are like, your parents want one thing, you want another, and then conflict, right? Mm-hmm. And then... With, with this story, you've got this third element where, like you said, there's this bigger culture, this white culture that she also has to cope with that wants something from her. There's the things that she wants for herself. 
And then there's the traditional culture that she's having to deal with all the expectations from that. Not, you know, not just her parents, but that whole community is like literally has surveillance on her like all the time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And it's like it adds such a great element to the story. It like makes that uh, coming of age story pop a little bit more. And it makes it so interesting, too. I think for people who are outside of the Sikh culture to get like a authentic window into it, I wish there was more of that. Like, it's just fantastic uh, way to tell that coming of age story. Yeah. And it's interesting. So as I was like looking for articles about the movie, um, just to kind of see what other people had said about it. I came across this one blog post that I'm actually not going to link to because <laughs> uh, I don't agree with most of what it said. Um, but it, it talks about the representation of the other, like capital O in this movie, and how this person really thought that the movie was like setting the Indian people apart and kind of like exoticizing them. <laughs> and as I was reading that huh. article, I was just like, what the fuck movie were you watching? <laughs> <laughs> Like, if anything, I feel like the, like, mainstream British white culture is treated as the other in this movie. Yeah. It really, like, humanizes her parents in so many ways and, like, shows that they have, all, like, all the same struggles. The Just the context is a little bit different. Yeah, I think. And so one of the things about this this movie that's interesting is it does, like, it touches on a lot of things like homophobia and racism and like intergenerational conflict and like sexual freedom and all of that, but it does it in a very lighthearted way. It's not super heavy handed. I think its message and tone really works a lot better in 2002 than it does in 2018. Why do you say that? The movie has a little bit of a sort of like, everyone's a little bit racist and homophobic, but like we're all good people on the inside. And like, sometimes the people you love say problematic things but, like, it's okay for you to love them anyway. Like, it still works on an emotional level for me, but based on just, like, how openly horrible things have gotten with regards to, like, racism and, and, you know, anti-gay, anti-woman bullshit Mm -hmm. in 2019, you know? Like, a lot of the microaggressions are paid for laughs here. Yeah. And it's not really grappled with in the way that like that shit can be really traumatic. I, I definitely laughed at those parts that where you're supposed to be laughing. Um, but I was like, ah, this doesn't fly anymore. Yeah. You know, like if if this movie was set in 2018, like instead of just like making a joke about wearing trackies, Jules would have had to sit down with her mom and be like, look, mom, I'm not a lesbian, but like, you need to cut that shit out because it's not okay. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like for this to come out in 2002, I think it was like in one of these weird production uh, limbos where you had 9-11 happen in America and then things that had already been made you know, like had been filmed and produced and were getting ready to be released, mm-hmm. like don't reflect that post 9-11 reality. And so for people who were Sikh, like her family, where the father wears a turban all the time and like his reality shifted after that, you know, a lot of like the bad situation that is going on in the UK these days 
is like polarization and escalization of those issues that started, you know, from the Iraq war and the way that they allied with the U.S. to invade and all of that stuff. Like, so like this movie doesn't reflect any of that. But when you or at least when I watched it, I was like, wow, this is like it's weirdly not exactly naive, but like it just doesn't have any of that in there, which would have been like very much, I feel like a background radiation, just like two or three years after this was released, if it had been written then. Yeah. And even just the fact that like, they show the parents going to the gate to say goodbye to their daughters, right? Like, I remember when you used to be able to do that. And Mm -hmm. in 2002, you could not do that anymore. But I guess it was still like, a new enough thing when they were filming it in 2001, probably. I was watching it with Christina and she said exactly that. She's like, why do they all have their shoes on? How did they get there without all taking their <laughs> shoes off? Yeah. <laughs> but it's still like, it's such a charming, wonderful story. It's so good. And before we move on to the next topic, I wanted to just like point out a couple ways the movie is visually representing the way that Jess has this kind of like dual identity. There's the scene where she's playing with the cabbage in the kitchen, like it's a soccer ball on her knees. <laughs> um, yeah. And when she's like using the like brightly colored clothes on the clothesline as a way to practice bending the ball like around a goalie. And when they have all of her her teammates helping her. Um, put her sorry back on so she can run back and make it to the the second half of the wedding reception, you know, and like, (laughs) and that's one of those moments um, that I feel like does kind of speak to this, like the good, happy side of cultural ignorance. That's like not the best way to put it. Um, But, you know, it's like these white British girls, like they don't know necessarily how like formal Indian clothing works. And it's kind of funny that they don't know how it works, but they're trying really hard and they're like, you know, expressing solidarity for her and her priorities and and like helping her get back to what she needs to do. This movie is expressing a certain kind of like multiculturalism and melting pot, uh, a melting pot vision of of society in a way that that was really made a bit more problematic by 9-11 and by some of the like outwardly aggressive and obvious expressions of white nationalism that have become really prominent in 2019 that weren't there at least weren't as like obviously out there in 2002 definitely yeah but i totally agree with the movie visually representing her kind of dual cultural experience and i was actually thinking that when i was watching the movie um the Mexican director Guillermo del Toro has this thing that he calls uh, visual world building. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I was thinking about watching this movie. Like the way that he talks about it, it's basically like you put elements inside of the frame and you never have to explain them because they explain themselves and explain the world mm-hmm. to the people who are watching You know, she's playing soccer with the cabbage and all that stuff. It's just so smart. It's really well done. It's not just the dialogue and the writing, but it's like what is actually being depicted visually for Mm -hmm. us. It tells us everything. It's great. Um, So the next thing I wanted to talk about was women in sports and femininity and feminism. There's a lot in the movie 
about the way that women are both sort of like discouraged from playing sports at all and also have like a lack of opportunities to do sports professionally compared to men. It's kind of depressing um, that they talk about America as kind of like this place where it's like, how long have you been playing? For ages, but just in the park. Nothing as serious as this. This is serious. That'll do for now. I want to play professionally. Wow, can you do that? I mean, as a job like? Sure. I'm not really here, but you can in America. They've got a pro league with new stadiums and everything. Really? Um, the WUSA league that they were talking about, it actually only lasted for two years. So it ran from, or two or three years, it ran from around 2000 to 2003. That was kind yeah. of depressing about watching this movie. There's like, I think a lot of optimism about like the future of women in sport that didn't come to fruition. <laughs> I didn't realize it was so short. Yeah. In some ways, I think that is part of what makes the film like still feel so relevant, right? Is that it's it's 15 years later and like the situation of women's sports hasn't actually improved that much. Um, mm. People still make fun of the WNBA all the time. The WNBA is still like the only real women professional women's sports league that exists out there. Yeah. To some extent, women's sports have become better supported at the university level. So I think it was like Title IX, basically, that mandates that schools spend the same amount of money on women's sports as they do men's sports. And so it takes a lot of women's sports uh, to make up for like, you know, the football, basketball, baseball teams for men's sides. Or maybe it's not exactly the same, <laughs> but it's like some some proportion. And so like... <laughs> I played women's rugby in college. Like a f few number of schools actually had like NCAA competitive teams. And I think it was just an accounting thing where it was like, oh, we need to be able to count as many women's sports as possible towards our title nine numbers. Mm -hmm. um, so like those teams were like very well funded because they wanted to be counted as like dollars put towards women's sports yep lsu had a team when i was there and i was friends with a lot of those girls oh those really cool girls yeah i never met a female rugby player i didn't like they were all cool. <laughs> oh that's good to know <laughs> um like the sports movie is such a well-known and like well-trodden genre I'm trying to think of like what other really good female sports movies are like obviously a league of their own yeah. is really iconic but it's also very historical it doesn't quite resonate like this movie does with like the everyday experience of just like a young girl who loves playing sports and then as as far as sports movies go I really liked the way that they kind of wove all of the games into the plot you know there's lots of different montages and lots of different games that are included in the movie but it never feels repetitive i feel like the sports drama supports the narrative really well and you're never just like bored that they're playing soccer and also like the soccer footage was pretty well done but yeah most of the other soccer players in the movie are legit just soccer players so that um obviously like perminder and kiera are actresses and then um the captain mel 
is actually a British pop star. Oh. Shazne Lewis. So she, she, I think one of her songs is also included in the movie. But yeah, she was like more famous than uh, Keira Knightley <laughs> at the time. And she was like kind of a big get for them. <laughs> Um, yeah, Keira Knightley was 16 in this movie. This was like the first, her first movie, um, and that really put her on the map. And I think it says a lot about uh, what opportunities are available to what kind of people. Um, that after this movie, Kira's career obviously like took off like crazy, and she was in Pirates of the Caribbean and all of that. And then yeah. Perminder basically. Uh, ended up on ER, which is, like, not a bad show, but it's just, like, mm, there's a reason why one of this one of them ended up as a movie star and the other one ended up as, like, a working TV actress, and it's not that Kira's more talented. <laughs> I think Kira's first thing is Star Wars. Um, oh, yeah, she was a body double for Padme. She is the queen. She's the one on the throne, and Padme is pretending to not be the queen but one of the handmaidens i think you're totally right though in the point that you're making about racism like clearly because she does such a great job carrying this movie yeah oh yeah and just while we're talking about actors briefly i wanted to put in that uh archie punjabi who plays pinky her sister is actually like a very well-known actress at the time and her dad anupam Kerr is a very, very well-known Indian actor. Grinder specifically cast him to increase the appeal of the movie in India uh, for, <laughs> like, the Indian theatrical release. That's smart. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, she she had a big hand in the casting, and I think uh, she did a great job pulling this group of people together. Before we get too far away from the... Um all the stuff about professional women's sports. One of the things that I was thinking while I was watching this was about uh, Abby Wambach. I don't know if you are familiar with her. Yeah, yeah. I know, like, that dream team. Yeah. Brandy Chastain, Mia Hamm, Abby Wambach, like, all of those people. Yeah, and she was, like, one of the highest scoring people, you know, like, in all of soccer, like, an amazing player. I was listening to a podcast earlier this year um, with her on there and uh, she was just talking about her life after retiring from sports and the podcast is called on being and, and uh, they were not really talking about sports in that but I'll link to it in the show notes if people want to check it out um, because she was saying how like she met the president and she was lined up with all of these other elite athletes who were all men and how everyone around her was like a multimillionaire. And oh my God. She, and she was happy to have like broken six figures recently, you know, so she's making like 200, 300,000 or something like that. And they're, you know, 20, 30 million uh, ahead. And it's just, you know, why? Because she's a woman. I mean, that's the only reason why. Yeah. The idea of a woman being good at sports doesn't sell. It's not inspirational enough. 
Mm-hmm. It's not going to get people to buy a product or turn on a TV. And she was even saying how she was like the soccer coach of like her kids soccer team and parents like telling her like you don't know anything about soccer you don't know are what you're you talking serious about. oh my because <laughs> they God. don't know who she is or and <sighs> one mother was telling her like well if you would teach these kids the stuff that abby wambach does then blah 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 and, and she was like i can't even with you right now <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i'm gonna punch you in the face uh, so she's constantly like having to just deal with people not taking her seriously, even when she's still in the field that she's most famous for. So it's just it's nuts. And so the sport that I'm playing now, um, which is ultimate frisbee, it's interesting because women do compete at a high level. Like there's like a women's nationals, um, and there's also like a really competitive co-ed scene. Like, a lot of the people who play at a high level are really aware of gender equity and trying to um, promote the women's game. But there is a professional, like, a semi-professional men's league um, where, like, they don't get paid a salary, but, you know, all of their, like, travel and uniforms and stuff are covered and they play in, you know, like, mostly high school football stadiums. Um, (laughs) It's just, it's really disappointing that, you know, there are a lot of, big name men players and like team owners who really just like don't get it. I do um have a friend who I know who who was on a team that won women's nationals. That's awesome. Yeah, she's like she's such a badass, although she's having to quit to pursue an actual career where she can make money. Mm, yeah, see? Yeah. <laughs> Another reason why this movie resonates with me still is because like yeah, the issue of women in sport is still a really contentious issue uh, and and something that I'm, like, dealing with in my life. <laughs> but, like, half the population of the world is women. And you, the, you think about how much money is spent on sports and sports memorabilia. And, like, that's a part of this movie where she's got, like, the Beckham jersey and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's a lot of money to be made yeah. by promoting elite athletes of any gender and then cashing in on that whole thing. Like, it... I don't know. It's just weird. Um, So moving on, like, from specifically women in sports to just, like, femininity and feminism more broadly, Grinder is on record saying that the idea of, like, bending the ball, like, curling it so it looks like it's going one way but then goes the other direction um, is actually, like, a metaphor (laughs) for, like, all of the obstacles that are set up in front of girls achieving their goals and how they have to kind of, like, bend the rules and twist themselves to get what they want. Um, So I don't know if if you saw that. It It didn't come across to me. I wish that no one had said that in the movie. Like, it's good that they don't say that. Yeah. But I wish that someone had expressed at some point, like, we have to bend around their rules or something you yeah. know, like that. And then you could kind of put it together like, oh, I get it. The name of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> but thinking more about what the movie's actually trying to say about feminism, if it is trying to say anything about feminism, I think it's a really strong representation of the idea of what's sometimes called like choice feminism. Feminism gets a bad rap from people thinking that in order to be a good feminist, you like 
can't be a stay-at-home mom or you can't prioritize your family over your career. Um, And that's kind of like in contrast to, I think, what is like the more true and and like mainstream vision of, of feminism as choice feminism, where it's like, the point of feminism isn't to go from saying like, oh, you have to stay within the home and only act within that sphere to you have to be outside of the home and like pursue a career. No, the whole point of feminism is to give people that choice that you can do whatever you feel most drawn to. If that is being a stay-at-home mom and taking care of your kids, then great. If that's pursuing a soccer career, then that's great. (laughs) Right. And I think the climax of the movie where it's the intercutting of Pinky at her wedding scene and Jess playing soccer in the final at the end, um, like they're both so happy and kind of like fulfilling Mm. their ultimate wish. And the movie, I think, is really trying to say that it's not that one of these choices or one of these women is better than the other. Um, they're, like, both being most fulfilled because they're following what feels right for them. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's really well said. I love that. And I think that's, like, the main theme of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Like, for all of the characters, they need to be more authentically themselves and and to kind of get out from under these wider social pressures like even the parents like at the end of this movie one of the reasons why i think this is a really good story is because nobody's the same at the end of it as they were at the beginning not even the supporting characters like the parents yeah they've all kind of gone on a emotional arc um and then i also wanted to talk a little bit about the male gaze and the female gaze and like the way that bodies are represented in the movie I just, I really liked the way that the movie handled it. It shows, I think, the female gaze of Pinky's friends watching, like, Jess's guy friends uh, playing without their shirts on in the park. And I think the kind of, like, it kind of invites the young female viewers to, like, gaze upon them in that way. Mm, he is so mm. tick, man. I know. <gasps> He's taking a shot. Oh my god! A body like that should come with an ex difficult <sighs> warning and a lifetime guarantee, man. Yeah, man. Call Jess. Call Jess. Oi, Jess. Jess, man. Who's your friend with the gorgeous bod? The one with the six pack. If he looks at me, I really will faint. Mm. What, Taz? Taz. Is that his name? Uh, oh, my god. oh, look at that kick. <laughs> And then, of course, her guy friends are like doing the same thing to the female players when they're playing soccer. Lads, check out the boobs on the captain. Jeez, man, they must get in the way. She's lucky she ain't knocked herself out running up and down the pitch with them. <laughs> Why can't you lot just see them as footballers? and it's kind of like it's showing that gaze going both ways but they're also like i don't think the movie is trying to say that they're exactly equivalent either though right because the female objectification of the male players ultimately has no impact on their life and like what opportunities are available for them right whereas like the male gaze on the female players you know 
the movie is already saying so much about like how their opportunities are limited and how they aren't really seen as just football players. And that's, you know, what her friend Tony says, like, can't you just see them as footballers? And I thought the way that the camera existed in the women's locker room was really interesting too, because I don't know. So like as a woman who spent a lot of time in like women's locker room spaces, the feeling that I got from the way the camera moved around in that space was that it felt really comfortable with women's bodies, um, but it wasn't objectifying them at all. Actually, like when they're getting undressed and stuff, it's about her embarrassment and how uncomfortable she is, right? You mean about her scar? Well, not not just the scar, but like she puts on the jersey over her other clothes and then takes off her oh, the yeah. shirt that she has on underneath. You know, I don't think I even noticed that. <laughs> but then all of the other girls are just like walking around in sports bras. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. I, I thought it, it did a really good balance, right? Because they could have just gone with the choice of like, oh, we're not going to show that intimate space. But that wouldn't have been authentic to the right. experience of playing sports and being in that space and I think that in some ways that would like reinforce the message that like female bodies are just for male consumption right Mm, and I think it felt like a celebration of of like women's bodies as athletes it didn't feel like it was trying to be like titillating or anything what do you think about the scene like given that where the mother is trying to get her to buy bras that aren't about sports. You're mad. I won't be seen dead in that. Oh, the rage puppet. You blew him up. Just like a lilo. Look, this little pump comes free with it. Pop it in there, in the belt. Pump, pump, pump away. Up it goes. Then, slip it back in there. Boom, boom. Cleavage. And they're perfect while you're still growing. Because they lift you Mom! right there. God, you're oh, so embarrassing. Got, sweetheart. All the girls have bought one for their daughters. Well, well, look, there's the fleur, that's pretty. Mm-hmm. And, and the gel bra, that's a clever one. No pumping, it's already in there. Oh no, sweetheart, not the sports bras, they're so plain. They don't enhance. Well, no one's gonna see them. No, but it's not how they look, it's how they make you feel. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, well, so there's this whole thing about femininity in the movie, right? Like both Jess and Jules really like wearing kind of like understated more masculine clothes like track suits or whatever like things that you don't comfortable clothes yeah comfortable clothes <laughs> things that aren't like things that are meant to yeah be comfortable and and functional and are not meant um to be appealing to men because we don't like you all to be comfortable right. like i've never understood this concept like it makes no sense to me yeah like i didn't really give a shit about clothes growing up either i Mostly just wear like jeans and t-shirts, not track suits. I mean, and my mom didn't push me at all to do otherwise. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that they were just wearing like really ordinary kind of like casual clothes helped me identify with the characters more and feeling, yeah, kind of like somewhat of an outsider for the way that you're kind of expected to perform femininity. I really liked at one point there was a scene where it cuts to Jess's parents watching like a movie or something where there's like a Bollywood movie and there's like a guy and there's like these two female dancers and he's all it is is just like him looking at their legs and like freaking out. I thought that was really interesting to put in there because it's you know I think her parents a lot of times 
like their perspective is that you know the british culture is pushing you know their girls to like act like whores or whatever and then like you know like good wholesome indian culture um wants them to do something else but there's actually like <laughs> there is like similar levels of objectification within indian culture and they like don't see that as problematic in the same way mm-hmm. um which is mm-hmm. like kind of an interesting blind spot that i think the movie is pointing out for them i think the use of that also is like this brilliantly sneaky way to like celebrate and like also like you say problematize bollywood movies so i just loved having that in there i was like oh that's so smart to put that in there because of course they watch this but also at the same time i bet you there's a whole bunch of white kids who watch it and they're like what is that? And it have never seen it before or know what it is at all. Mm-hmm. I loved that she put that in there. It's so smart. I also love how um, during the clubbing scene in Germany, all of the soccer players have really intense sports bra tan lines. And like even <laughs> Kier Knightley does. <laughs> and that's just like, that's so authentic. And it's something that you get when you hire like actual soccer players, not mm-hmm. like, you know, actresses <laughs> who are worried about their perfect whatever tan line bodies. And that Keir Knightley was like training so much for this role that she actually got that tan. <laughs> Parminder actually did, her skin did get a lot darker from all the time that she was spending outside. And then that they have the mom put that line in there as like a nod, both to like the reality of her skin tone, but also the internalized uh, racism and like colorism than the Indian community. Good old colonialism. Um, And also, so I don't know if you knew this, but apparently the scar that Jess has, that's actually Parminder's real scar and this oh, wow. and the story in the movie is the real story for how Perminder got the scar oh no i didn't know that at all i was eight my mom was working overtime at heathrow and i was trying to cook beans on toast and i jumped up to the grill to get the toast my trousers caught light so my sister put me in the bath poured cold water over me and pulled them off but half my skin came off too sorry I know. Put me off beans on toast for life. (laughs) They were afraid that it would basically prevent her from getting the role. Um, And instead, they just added it into the movie. Part of what makes the movie feel so real, right, is there's like all these little extra details that actually like came from the actors themselves and got incorporated into the story and like make it feel a lot more rich. So wait, like, is his injury real then? Or did they add that element? That scar, I think, was probably fake. Yeah. That's interesting. So I wonder if they wrote that to like, um, because they kind of bond there. Like, that's an important emotional touchstone for those characters. Yeah. And we'll talk about this later. But like, the romance is definitely, I think, like the C plot of the movie. (laughs) Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, I didn't even include it in the summary because I was just like, well, it's not that important. <laughs> I didn't even think of it as being a part of the romance. I mean, you're right about that. 
the scar, you can almost read it as like a metaphor for like personal shame. Now that she's finally getting to start to live her dreams, she's got like this imposter syndrome kicking in, right? Like, who am I? I've only been playing in the park. Jesus, Mm -hmm. what have I gotten myself into? I'm over my head. And this, you know, the coach comes over and says, hey, look, I've got a scar too. Like everybody's carrying around these issues. Like it's not a big deal. Just get out there and do your best. Nobody cares. It's it's just a, a stepping stone to her accepting herself, right? That's yeah more what that uh, scar is about. Well, and I think it all the scar also speaks to like I think a very specific type of body shame that a lot of women feel. You yeah. know, there's a lot of pressure to be perfect. I think a lot of people do have a lot of like shame about scars, and it's like if you have a scar, it's because like something happened to your skin like it's not (laughs) there's no like morality or like there Mm -hmm. shouldn't be any morality or shame attached to that it's just a mark on your body but there really is especially for women yeah and that's why that scene plays so well i'm just shocked to hear that um that it wasn't a part of the script and that it was like incorporated because of her actual scar because To me, it just feels so fundamental to the story. So that's fascinating to find that out. Okay, so now I think we should really dig into the LGBT stuff. Or I guess LG, at least. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we got a lot of feedback about that. And um, Jenna and Sarah, other girl, and uh, Kate, I Do Human Things, they all said that I shipped the two girls. I wish it was gayer, basically. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so that's interesting because I actually had no idea about this. And I consider myself like not super well-versed, but reasonably well-versed in like queer pop culture from this era. But so there's a quote from Heather Hogan in an ESPN article um, that we'll we'll link in the show notes where she says, uh, there really isn't another movie in the entirety of the queer subtext canon that is considered as universally queer as Bennett Lake Beckham. It's honestly the plot of Pride and Prejudice inside a soccer movie. Both women being in love with Coach Joe feels like it's wedged in there to convince the audience those two women aren't in love with each other. Heather Hogan is completely entitled to her opinion and reading of this, and so I'm not exactly contradicting it, but uh, I'm confused at how this is a Pride and Prejudice. Like, who's the Wickham? Oh. Like, what? Uh, Maybe she meant that as, like, a more loose metaphor for like push-pull romance rather than like I guess yeah <laughs> specific I was just confused by that when I read it I was like uh what <laughs> I get it Kira Knightley she was in Pride and Prejudice it's fine but whatever <laughs> and on the one hand I do agree that the romance feels wedged in there or it I would say it just, like, it doesn't feel like a central important part of the movie. And I actually like that about it. Like, I'm glad that it's not central to the movie. (laughs) I'm glad it's there, though, because it is a coming-of-age story, and it's just one element of her becoming fully grown and independent, is, like, her sexuality and, like, the choice of, like, who am I going to be with and this is one option and like navigating the complexity of friendship and romance. Like that's good that it's in there. It's I'm glad that it's not the point though. Yeah. Like on the one hand, I think it's shitty that this could have been like a really important representation of women in a romantic relationship together. 
I'm also not that upset that it's a portrayal of like not super feminine straight women playing sports because I think there's also like a big stereotype that to be a good female athlete, you have to be a lesbian. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I feel like it's almost one of those situations where it's like there's so little representation of women in sports that you can end up getting like factions fighting against each other for representation. It's like, oh, well, like straight girls can play sports, too. But like lesbians aren't ever shown in movies at all, ever. So like, why can't we have the sports movie? There should really just be like a lot more movies about women in sports, some with straight characters, some with lesbian characters. And so yeah. we're not just, like, fighting over who gets to be represented in, like, the one good female sports movie. Which would probably also help with normalizing that and helping to build up the sports community around women's sports at the same time. So yeah, that would just all around be good. Watching through the movie this time, I was keeping an eye on the romance between them and... I can definitely see how, like, if you're watching it with that perspective, it's so gay. It's just so, so beautifully (laughs) gay. (laughs) I like, (laughs) and I love that, I love that people choose to read it that way and, and that it became iconic that way, you know? But yeah, apparently, um, Keira Knightley was interviewed recently by Pride Source and said that she does think Um, that there should be, like, a lesbian sequel or it should be remade as a lesbian love story. Um, And she agrees that Jules and Jess should have ended up together. So Kier's on your side, everybody. Like, don't worry. (laughs) It'd be fun to, like, have a sequel where they are, like, soccer moms, but together. (laughs) And, like, their kids are playing soccer and they're teaching them, like, no, no. Like, you got to bend it like Beckham. And they're like, who? Who is... Who is that? We talked a little bit earlier about how uh, Jules's mom, Paula, like her homophobia does not age well. Like you can tell it was meant in kind of a lighthearted way where she's like, oh, you know, devastated when she thinks her daughter is a lesbian, but trying to really be okay with it because she knows that that's like the politically correct thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like Jess's friend, Tony... Um, who ends up coming out as gay as part of the movie. I f- almost feel like he was added in to make the movie seem less anti-LG. I mean, on the one hand, Paula's homophobia is, like, devastatingly real. And so you do need a counterbalance to show that, like, the movie's not actually saying that this is okay. Like, the movie is firmly of the stance that being gay is okay. It doesn't feel exactly just tacked on because I feel like his gayness does end up influencing the plot in some ways. When he tries to tell their parents that they're going to get married as a way to cover for her so she can go to America and play soccer. Mm -hmm. In that way, I feel like his character is a bit more fleshed out and feels more authentic than it could be. That moment is informed by his sexuality where you understand that this is a larger sacrifice for him. Yeah. Although it's like a terrible choice that I'm glad they back out of immediately. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think the way to do that, to make sure that your movie is sending a message that is not anti-gay is to arc Paula out of that homophobia, probably by way of love 
for her daughter instead of like a Maria Navatilova joke. Like having the gay character in there of of Tony is good because there should be more representation just all around. Like, I think you're right in what you're saying that he's there to kind of balance the perspective of the movie and make it very clear where the movie's ethics are grounded. But like, I wouldn't take him out because of that for Jules to say like, you know, mom, you're, you're wrong about this. Um, Like there should be probably even more gay characters, I would say just all around in the movie. It is kind of an, an accurate snapshot for where the like British Indian community was on those issues in the late 90s. Jess's whole response of like, oh, but you're Indian. Like, <laughs> there's a perception that like, oh, yeah, there's these like alternative sexual orientations, but they are not in our community. They're from outside the community. And that a lot of the like aunties like don't even know the word lesbian or like understand what right. what They're that is. Completely confused by that, which felt so real. I yeah. Was like, oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that and that Grinders was saying that like that came from genuine things that she's observed from people in her family and her community. Oh, and while we're talking about this movie as like queer culture, I just want to point out that like Sporty Spice. Um, is a huge queer icon and also has probably like the second biggest celebrity role in the movie. So two of her songs are actually featured in the film and um, and they name drop her. And yeah, and Paula has that line about how honey. All I'm saying is there is a reason why Sporty Spice is the only one of them without a fella. Uh. Um <laughs> And so they invited Mel C, um, a.k.a. Sporty Spice, to watch the movie before it was released. And apparently she, like, loved that line and was <laughs> laughing out loud. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah. And uh, and as far as, like, things that resonated with me as a kid, I definitely, like, Sporty Spice was hands down my favorite. And, like, the Spice <laughs> Girl that I wanted to be. So, like, I so identified with that. So... How did you feel about the romance and the way it was pulled off? This is 2019. We're in like the Me Too or post Me Too era, right? And I think there's been a lot of conversations in the past few years about like power differentials between different people and and like to what extent in what situations people can really consent. I think the movie does a decent job of sort of portraying Joe as like very young, but there's still that power differential between him as the coach and her as the player. And there's that scene where like he's yelling at her and I think she takes it really personally because they've had that sort of like quasi-romantic interactions and she's attached to him, not just as a coach. I do think that it's good that it kind of starts in her mind. I don't know how to how to say it the right way, but it, it, since the movie is in her perspective and is about her, it feels like not exactly wish fulfillment, but like I'm choosing this person and then I want to go after it. And oh, actually, this is a little bit too much for me right now. I'm not going to go ahead with this. Mm -hmm. And so I like all of those aspects about how much agency she has in her romantic choices and, and the pace at which those things move. And it makes sense that her being young and this being a coming of age story, she would make a kind of inappropriate choice. Um, <laughs> 
But the actual dynamics of that relationship, yeah, made me pretty uncomfortable, especially like now that I'm grown up and relating more to the parents than I am to the kids. Yeah. I was like, you are making the wrong move here, dude. Like, (laughs) it does not matter how, you know, talented and beautiful and smart this girl is. She is like your player. This is not the right move. I think it could have been a lot worse. Like, in general, he's pretty respectful. I will. And then the other thing is that, like, when I was playing rugby in college, at several points, we had, like, players dating our coaches who were, again, like, a couple years older. Um, But I guess, you know, when you have a high schooler dating someone who's a few years out of high school that's different than you have a college student who's dating someone who's a few years out of college. Like that, that same age Mm -hmm. differential means more, um, the younger the student is. I think the people I knew found a way to make it work. Looking back, I don't think I would have say like, oh, they shouldn't have dated our team coach. Um, but again, you know, like rugby is a, it's like a club sport at most schools. You know, it was a varsity sport. The coach wasn't like really getting paid that much. It wasn't a career track. It wasn't like the coach had a lot of power to determine, you know, like the course of their life. Whereas clearly she had a lot on the line, right? And he could have used that to manipulate her. Like he didn't. It didn't happen that way in this movie. Like the relationship seems pretty functional. But it's like kind of playing with fire. And it's, he's not like grooming a bunch of women for him to choose from. Yeah. Like that's, you get no sense that that is the case. It's just that these two people happen to have an attraction and a spark. And a, and a connection yeah. um, that I think the movie does a decent job of building, despite the fact that, like I said, it is basically like the C or D plot of the movie. <laughs> Speaking of like, 2019 versions of this or something like that like I don't think that would be a part of the story anymore especially given like all of the scandals around sport coaches yeah and sexual abuse that have come out you know not just between a, a man and a woman necessarily like there's a lot of abuse of of men on men and stuff mm-hmm. uh, that has come out over the years so Yeah, I I don't think this element of the plot would survive an adaptation or would be, like, so severely changed as to be something different. Also, like, it just felt like, um, you know, given, like, the rise of YA fiction and female protagonists, I was like, where where is, like, the two boys that she's supposed to choose from? You know, (laughs) it's like the, the normal trope. Why is it the coach? It doesn't make sense. Oh, I'm so glad that there was none of that in this movie. No, um, no, I'm me too. No. But I was just like, <laughs> but I think you're right. If this movie were to be remade, it would like it would have to be a romance between the two main characters. Yeah, yeah. So one other thing that I wanted to mention was just the role of food in this movie. I think for a lot of diaspora peoples, like food is one of the central things that connects them back to their culture. You know, food comes up over and over again in this movie. She's, like, learning how to make this Indian meal throughout the movie. And, you know, there's, like, chapatis and alu gobi. And then the seamstress Taylor uh, woman, like, comparing her her breasts to, like, mangoes uh, in the tailoring (laughs) scene. I thought that was a really nice representation 
of the really strong role that food does serve as part of cultural identity. I want to just like point out that there's a a funny um, segment by the comedian Hari Kondabolu that's all about Indian people and their relationship to mangoes that I think kind of speaks to that like special relationship that you can have with food when you're living in a culture that is like not your culture or not your family's culture. Yeah, so we'll link to that in the show notes. I loved all of that stuff. And probably the biggest laugh that me and Christina had while we were watching the movie was um, her mother like at the end. And she was like, I taught her how to make Indian dinner, like vegetarian dinner. And that is all I can do. And God has to do the rest. Yeah, like vegetarian and meat, full dinner. Right. (laughs) So good. I also really loved um, the role that music played in the movie. I watched this movie so much in high school, there's not a song on the soundtrack that does not just like immediately (laughs) bring me back to that feeling of what it was like to be like a 16, 17 year old watching this movie. Do you have a favorite track? Uh, I mean, I really love Curtis Mayfield's and this actually, this movie like got me into Curtis Mayfield more generally. Um, so I would say like that's probably the one that I like the most and the one that I've listened to the most like outside of this movie. Um, but all they all work so well together. Um, and I love how there's like for the most part kind of like Western music for the soccer teams and then Indian music used um, for the home scenes and then in sort of like, the wedding soccer montage where it's cutting back and forth. It starts out uh, with the Indian dance song and then switches to like the Western opera music. And so it's kind of like, <laughs> and then the um, at the end they play the Bina mystery version of Hot, Hot, Hot. Um, where so like the original- uh, so good. The original song was done by a Caribbean artist. It's all in English. Um, and then, you know, there's the Bina Mystery version that has a lot of Hindi in it. Um, and so... Again, Wait, so is it originally a Hindi song? No, no, it's originally just an English song. Okay. Um, but okay. she added a bunch of Hindi lyrics. It's mo- it's like the original song is a bit more sparse, just kind of like a jammy thing with like the yeah. chorus kind of over and over again. Um, and um, Bina Mystery added like a bunch of lyrics in between. I love that. Yeah, so that whole thing is so fun. So like the way that the music is used to kind of like differentiate the different areas of her life and then kind of like fuse them together and like really highlight the British Indian music industry. Like a lot of the music here came from Gurinder's CD collection. And so yeah, I just thought the music is almost its own character in this movie. So I just had a couple other things that I wanted to touch on. Um I love the, it's like not quite a traditional three beat, but kind of a different kind of three beat of um, the wedding decoration lights. When Pinky gets engaged, you see her dad putting the lights up. And then when the uh, wedding's called off, you see him taking the lights down. And then when the wedding's back on, they like put them back up. It's like a very, (laughs) there's something that's just like really inherently funny about that as like, the like physical manifestation of the mood in the house and like how things are going for the family. 
I love all of the plane shots that are yeah um, sprinkled in throughout. You know, Hounslow is a suburb that's like right near Heathrow, and so like her family all works at Heathrow, and there's just like constant planes coming by. It like it's a very authentic, real feeling of that area. Um, Gurinder points out in the commentary that you know this is a movie about immigrants. You know, the idea that they, like, got there by plane and that there's all of these planes around. And then I also really love the idea that the planes are kind of, like, foreshadowing for the end of the movie, right? Because at the end, they're, like, in Heathrow that has been sort of, like, a constant background of the movie and going off Mm -hmm. to their, like, happy ending. I loved that, too. Like, I really noticed that. I was like, oh, that is, this is so smart. Like, the way that... It was just sprinkled in there the whole time, but also how that like speaks to like their kind of economic class and how like the mom has anxiety about that. Mm -hmm. Like nobody has airplanes fly over their house who has money. They're working class. Yeah. It's showing that, but simultaneously like it was sprinkling that in the whole time to lead up to that ending. And you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, that just knits the whole thing together so well. Given the age of all these characters and the fact that they are Sikh, I was thinking like, oh, I wonder if her parents moved to uh, England to get away from the political unrest that happened in the 80s in northern Pakistan around the Sikh community. Oh. Because they had like a revolution where the Sikhs tried to become like their own country, tried to like secede kind of. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, it, it was just like a big mess. And, and there's also like pressure from... Islamists to the north and and the Indian government and all this stuff they like they kind of got cracked like a nut like it didn't go off um but a lot of Sikhs got out of the country around that time it was actually like less dangerous to live in England you know and they didn't have as much money as some of the other people in their community so it seemed like they had they weren't the children of immigrants they were the immigrants you know what I mean yeah that feels very authentic and and they have the icon of the prophet on the wall and all this stuff. And so like from a religious and historical thing, I was like all of this, like I didn't know all this stuff that you're talking about with the director and, Mm -hmm. and all the autobiography, but I was like, this is all extremely authentic. Like whoever made this absolutely knows what they're talking about. um, Well, I don't from a cultural standpoint. Yeah. I don't know exactly like what the backstory is on the parents, but I do know. So Gurinder was born and, in Kenya, just like the father. Um, and they mm-hmm. move, her parents moved to London when she was a young kid. That is something that was really autobiographical. And I think her father experienced a lot of discrimination for being Sikh um, in London when they first moved there. Yeah. And, and Sikhism is like extremely distinctive because of the the head wrap and the, the long hair that it covers and, and all of that stuff. So they're like visually they're easy to pick out right because versus like another like if you're buddhist or something nobody can tell by looking at you yeah as opposed to like orthodox jew or something like that mm-hmm. um and so that's something that Sikhs deal with all the time but it was just so interesting to like see a movie that just kind of normalized that Sikh experience which um you don't see that much. Yeah. Like Sikhs are so interesting to me. Like um, they're like this combination of like, they're kind of like a reaction that 
happened in like the 1500s to Islam and to Buddhism and Hinduism. The picture that they have, the icon, that's the founder of the religion that the mom is like praying to all the time. Mm -hmm. And he like basically like took kind of the best elements of those three traditions and kind of combined them into this like it's a monotheistic religion that is all about like your behavior and like social justice and uh, education. And um, and so it was just really cool to see it in a movie represented in a way that shows that they're just like regular people, but also like these are all the values and anxieties that they have, which are just as normal as the anxieties that the white people have about their kids in the story as well. Yeah. And so like that contrast is so smart and uh, lovely. And it was just a real cool thing about the movie. So you said that you um, saw this movie like so many times with your friend growing up. Have you shared it with other people like when you went on to college and as an adult? Like how did that go? Yeah, I've made sure to rewatch it like every few years, you know, it's one of the movies that I think I like quote most, just like in life, certain phrases <laughs> will like come to me in different situations. And so like every once in a while, I realize that like I have a good friend who hasn't seen the movie and I'm like, okay, <laughs> like let's pick a date. Like I'm going to make Alu Gobi and then we'll watch this movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're going to start a podcast and I'm going to make yeah. you watch this movie. Yeah, and everyone I've shown it to, um, I think, has, like, really enjoyed the experience of watching it. So I've had a lot of success showing it to other people. I went to uh, the UK for the first time a couple years ago and, like, flew into Heathrow. And I remember I was, like, taking the bus into the city center and we are like, going through Hounslow. And I was, like, so excited (laughs) for this, like... (laughs) Very, like, ordinary, quiet suburb. But I was like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm where it all happened. Does it look like that? Is that they shoot on location? Yeah, it's very, yeah, it's very accurate. Yeah, That's and, a, cool. like, that first shopping scene where they're going to get stuff for Pinky's wedding, like, that Broadway street is the street where Gurinder grew up and, like, did oh, all wow. of her shopping with her parents as a kid. So the, the house set, it was, like, a, a set in a movie studio, but a lot of the furnishings she just took from her mom's house. <laughs> we were joking, me and Christina, when we were watching it about the couch and stuff. We were like, oh, man, that is like some embarrassing furniture on a certain level. So that's kind of perfect. Yeah. <laughs> like one of the comments that she got a lot as the movie was screening was a lot of like British South Asian teenagers were like, you gave away all of our tricks. <laughs> they're like hiding in the bed and like sneaking out the door hiding the things in the garden like all of that <laughs> she was like yeah there's a reason why i put all that in there because that was like the shit i was doing when i was a teenager <laughs> my taiwanese friend at one point she was like dating the white boy next door secretly and her parents didn't know and she would like invite me and my friend our other friend over and then like leave us in her bedroom to go like make out with her boyfriend oh wow (laughs) because like if we weren't there her parents would want to keep an eye on her but you know when we were there they just assumed that we were all hanging out in her room (laughs) and it was just like so funny yeah so do you have any other final thoughts on the movie now that we've discussed it no it's it was so cool though to find out all that stuff about the director like I had no idea and um so yeah I'm I'm looking forward to trying to share it 
with my kids. I've got um, two young daughters. I think they'd really like this movie, but they were not uh, for watching any movies with me lately. Like every time I try to like, Hey, let's watch a movie. They're like, Hey, let's not. So, like, <laughs> so you got to wait. Is not in a place. You right got to wait for the right moment to introduce it to them, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I love this movie. And I think that it continues to resonate with audiences, um, both like people who've loved it for a long time and people who are discovering it for the first time. To prepare for this episode, I just kind of did a general like search for the phrase Bennett like Beckham on Twitter. And there's like a ton of really recent threads like of people talking about this movie and how much it meant to them. And there was even this like really great thread about all of the lesbian moments, the buildup of that subtextual romance between Jess and Jules that I thought was really funny and and beautiful. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I thought it was, it was really great. So I'll, uh, we can put that in the show notes too. So join us next month for an episode on A Knight's Tale, uh, which is basically, I think, Alan's answer uh, to this movie for me in terms of like his favorite kind of <laughs> teen exploitation romance thing. I don't even I wouldn't even say it's a teen movie. I mean, it is definitely a coming of age movie now that I'm thinking about it. So maybe you got a good. Maybe I just think it's a teen movie because it came out when I was a teen and like my peers liked it. (laughs) Although I have not seen this movie, so I'm actually really looking forward to watching it. I love the movie because it has, um, and this might mess with your strangely literalness, but it has this audio visual quality to it that distorts the reality of the film, but it gives you the modern viewer the context and feeling of what is happening in the uh, medieval setting. We'll talk about it when, when we cover it, but there's like the use of music in the movie and the use of like visuals and the motion of the camera and stuff are really, really smart. And it like kind of swings in and out of modernity and like antiquity in a way that I think is brilliant and fascinating. Awesome. Well, I can't, cannot wait to watch that. So the other thing that I really wanted to say that I forgot was just that um, if you like this movie and you like its like pro-women in sports message, the 2019 Women's World Cup is coming up. It's going to be um, from June 7th to July 7th. Um, so starting a week after this episode drops. And that's one of the reasons why we specifically rearrange the schedule so that this episode um, would be happening right now. Um, So definitely check that out. Um, Even though FIFA has a lot of problematic issues, I'm still really, really uh, looking forward um, to this World Cup and and enjoying the chance to see some amazing women athletes compete uh, on the international stage. And so with that, I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow the show on Twitter at HGStoryCast, and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com. And if you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit HGStoryCast.com contact, or send an email to contact at HallowedGroundMedia.com.
Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.